morning. Um, well, it's a privilege to be with you to share God's word this morning. Uh, our my wife and I have been in pastoral ministry for over 30 years, most of it in the San Diego area. We pastored in four different churches down there, and that's when we, we got to know Eric and Amelia at one of those churches over 10 years ago. Uh, I also had the privilege of serving alongside Iron Kim in the Presbytery and got to know Iron real well and, and the church here through Iron and was glad uh, when, when Eric took the call to come up here last year and, and uh, continue on in that good work. So it's good to be with you this morning to share in God's word. I'd like to just uh, take a moment to pray before we turn our focus to this passage. Lord, we thank you for your, your blessings to us, you have the blessing of your word, the blessing of uh, your love. We pray that you would give us hearts this morning that would be open to hearing what you have uh, for us in this passage, what you're trying to teach us, and that we would embrace not only the truth that's here, but the one who is here. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage that Frank read to you this morning is one of the most uh, familiar passages to us as Christians. And the main place that we probably hear this passage read is where? It's in weddings, right? Uh, how many times you go to a wedding? And they may not read all the verses that are in 1 Corinthians 13, but they certainly will read verses 4 through 8 where it describes what what love is, and usually when those verses are read, uh, the reaction that we have at a wedding is to kind of, our, our eyes kind of roll back and we swoon and we think, oh, this is so beautiful. This is, this is just a lovely expression of love, and, and we think of it in those kind of terms. Uh, as, as pastors, there's a lot of uh, stories that we always have about weddings. Um, in being in the ministry for over 30 years, I've probably done 50 weddings or so, and I've I have a lot of different stories that I remember. My favorite story, though, about uh, pastors and weddings came from a friend of mine who was my college roommate, actually. And uh, his first position after he left seminary was in a very large church where uh, he was an assistant pastor, and his job was to do all, all of the premarital counseling, which resulted in him doing a lot of the weddings. And he told me that uh, some of those early years when he was in that position, it wasn't uncommon for him to do 30 or 35 weddings a year in that position. And he told about the time where uh, he came to a Saturday, there was this wedding, and, and you know how the weddings always get going after the prelude music, the, the pastor and the groom and the groomsmen will come in from the side and then everyone turns their attention to the back for the, for the processional. Uh, when... The processional starts as a pastor. That's the last chance you have to kind of collect yourself because, you know, no one's looking at you at that point. Everyone's looking uh, toward the back. And when my friend Dwayne was uh, at that point where he came in with all the guys, he stood there, everyone was looking at the back. He opened up his notes, and to his horror, he realized he hadn't changed his notes from the week before. Now, that was, it, wa it wasn't a problem in terms of vows or the message or, or anything like that, but the names were wrong. And, and he went into instant brain lock, brain freeze, and he, for the life of him, he could not remember the name of the groom and the bride when he was about to do this wedding. And he proceeded to do the whole wedding without ever mentioning the name of the groom or the bride. And we laugh about that. You know, I said, Dwayne, I, I can understand that down to the point where at the end you go, it's now my great privilege 
to present to you Mr. and Mrs. You know, I said, what did you do? And he goes, I just got to the end and I said, it's my privilege to present to you the bride and the groom, you know, and they turned around and they walked out. And he went off and, and grabbed a program and saw right away what the names were so he could kind of try to cover himself from that point on. Uh, he was, it was classic Dwayne. He's probably the only one I know that could have pulled that off. Uh, but weddings are, are great experiences. As Passages like this are read. We're often uh, very inspired sometimes by those passages. I think, though, that if... Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this uh, passage in 1 Corinthians 13, were present. If he was present at our weddings when this was read, um, he would kind of be looking around with a puzzled look on his face. I think, and he would be looking with a puzzled look on his face because he would say, "Why are you reading that passage at a wedding?" Because when Paul wrote this passage back in the day to the people at Corinth. It wasn't to cause them to swoon. It wasn't to cause them uh, to think inspiring thoughts about love. This passage to those people was as strong of a rebuke as he could give to them. And he would think as he would hear this passage read in our weddings, why are you reading a rebuke at a wedding? And so I want you to understand, that's one of my goals this morning, to help you understand the context in which Paul writes this passage. And in one sense, I want to break it all down for you and destroy it for you uh, so that you'll never hear it the same way again. And that'll be a good thing because hopefully uh, what we'll see out of this passage as we build it back up is something that's even far more precious than being inspired by the words that Paul has here. Uh, one, of my, one of my best stories about doing a wedding happened with a couple that I really didn't know very well. About 20 years ago, I picked up a passion that I had through college. I played baseball through college. 20 years ago, I started playing adult league baseball, and that put me into the context of a whole bunch of people that uh, were irreligious, non-religious, uh, very, you know, often very profane people, and, and I, I just really enjoyed playing baseball, enjoyed being around these people. It gave me all kinds of opportunities to do weddings, to do funerals, to do counseling, and all, all, all these sorts of things, and that wasn't the main reason I was doing it. It was just kind of a side benefit, and one of these weddings that I did was through, through this connection playing baseball. It was a wedding of a fellow named Mike who was a manager of an independent professional team, and his wife was Cindy. And I met with them, and I talked with them about their wedding, what they wanted at their wedding. And, and uh, they basically wanted two things. They said, we want you to weave in something about baseball. That was very important to them. I said, okay, I can do baseball. And the second thing they said was that they had been a couple for pretty much about 10 or 12 years um, and hadn't been married that whole time. And they were kind of tired of people Talking, uh, talking about them like, why aren't you married? Why, why haven't you done this yet? And they, they wanted me to address that in some way. So I took that information and I, I went back home and thought about it for the next week or so. And I thought, well, you know, here's what I'm going to do with the message. I'm going to talk about baseball being one of those few games where there's no clock involved. You know, baseball, there's no clock in baseball. There's nine innings and it's over when it's over. My wife often would when I'd go to watch a game or go to play a game, she'd say, home. I don't know, it's baseball. 
You know, I'll be over when it's over. I'll, be, I'll come home when it's over. If any of you watched the World Series this year, I know Eric did. Uh, game seven, you know, it's a long, drawn-out game. And then in the 10th inning, it starts raining. It's going extra innings, and it's just going on and on and on. You just never know. And so I thought, well, I'll make the point that marriage is more like baseball than a 100-yard dash. You know, it's, it's not something you do quickly, but it's something that takes time, and, and it seasons, and it grows, and, and all that sort of thing. And I thought in terms of a passage that what Paul says here about love being patient love being kind, those sorts of things would be very appropriate for those thoughts. So I kind of arranged those thoughts rehearsal the night before, and I went up to Cindy and I said, Cindy, is there anything else you want me to be thinking about for the wedding tomorrow? I can change on the fly anything you want me to do. And she says, well, there's just one thing I didn't mention. She said, I, I'm sure you're going to read some scripture, but just don't read that passage that says love is patient. <laughs> I'm like, Okay, well, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, that, that torpedoes that idea. Uh, but I kind of laughed, and I said, well, Cindy, why don't you want me to read that? And she goes, because I'm not a patient person. And she went on to explain that during these 10 or 12 years that she and Mike had been dating each other, she'd probably been in 15 weddings. And she said, at every wedding, they read that passage, and, and it just grates against me because I'm not a patient person. And I just kind of laughed and said, okay, and we went in a different way with with the sermon. But I think that what Cindy was on to was a better understanding of this passage than what most of us as, as Christians who've heard it for years and years and years uh, would have of this passage. Because the context, in the context, Paul is trying to bring conviction to these people. Not comfort, not inspiration, but conviction to these people. In this passage in verse 12, we see here a goal. Paul is moving toward. He says it's a goal, really, that we're all moving toward. And there's a lot of, in the, latter, in the last paragraph or so of this passage, there's a lot of interesting exegetical things. Of what, what exactly does this mean? What is it referring to? I'm not going to get into all of that this morning. But the one thing that Paul says here in verse 12 is that um, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. He holds out this promise uh, this vision of being able to see God face to face. It's what the medieval philosophers and theologians called the beatific vision. And, and the way that they would describe it, the way that Paul is using it, it, it's the vision of God that would meet every longing of our hearts. It's like that vision will connect us up with what God created us to do and to be It'll, it'll, it'll scratch every, fulfill every longing. That beatific vision is something Paul longs for. And he's talking about a time when that will actually uh, take place. But in one sense, through this whole passage, he's saying, you have to understand how you're going to get there. How are you going to get to the point where you can experience the joy and the pleasure of that beatific vision? And he says, basically, to get there, you have to pass the test. You have to pass the test. And that raises the question, well, what is the test? If we have to pass a test to get to that beatific vision, what is the test? Well, what Paul says in the first three verses, and this is point one in your outlines if you want to take some notes along here with me. What he says in the first three verses to the Corinthians is basically you're taking the wrong test. They realize they need to do something here, but he says you're taking the wrong test. 
uh, as you look at your as you look at your walk with God and your Christian obligations, is you're taking the wrong test. Some of you may be, may know the name Matt Emmons. I doubt that too many of you do. Matt Emmons was an Olympic athlete in the 2004 uh, games in Athens and the 2008 games in Beijing. Uh, he was not uh, an athlete in one of the spectacular, like the swimming or the running or that sort of thing. He was actually a shooter. And <clears throat> he, in the 2004 Olympics, uh, he go won the gold medal in the prone position shooting at 50 meters. And he was in competition for what they call uh, the three position uh, gold medal. The three position is you, you shoot 10 shots prone, lying on your stomach, uh, aiming at the target. You shoot 10 shots on a knee, kneeling, and then you shoot 10 shots standing up. And he was so far out ahead of the field that in the last of the, uh, the, the, last of the competitions, he had averaged something like 9.2 on every shot out of 10. He needed only like a 7.3 to win the gold medal. He was so far out ahead. And everyone knew that he was, he'd already won the gold in the prone position. And, and he, he was just one shot away from wrapping this whole thing up. Uh, he took aim at the target 50 meters away, uh, watched through his, his uh, sight, focused it right in on the bullseye, squoze the trigger, and it went right through the middle. And he figured, I've got the gold medal. It's over. He looked up at the board where the score would flash, and nothing was happening. And he thought, that's kind of odd. And then he noticed that the judges were all kind of huddled and talking to each other, and that was kind of strange too, until one of them finally came out and said that Matt Emmons, on his very last shot, had crossfire. And what that means is that he was like in lane two, and he shot the target in lane three. And he hit a bullseye on that target. But because he crossfired and didn't hit his own target, his score was zero, and he fell out of the medal competition for a, a, an event that it was all but his. And it was a very, you know, tragic thing for him to have to go through that. And it was all because he aimed at the wrong target. He hit the target. He hit the bullseye. But he was aiming at the wrong target. And that's what Paul is telling these people here in Corinth in verses 1 through 3 when he says, If I speak with the tongues of men, have not love, I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand mysteries, knowledge, faith, but have not love, I'm nothing. He says, If I give away all I have, deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I'm nothing. He's basically saying to these people in Corinth, You can do all the things that you think are the test. You can have spectacular gifts. And he says, they're not going to impress God if you don't have love. He says, you can have great leadership qualities. You can understand mysteries. You can teach. You can be very public in the gifts that you have. But if you don't have love, it's nothing. And he even goes on to say, you can make tremendous sacrifices. And even uh, go through martyrdom. And he says, that will not impress God. Because that's not the test God is asking you to take. Now, this would have hit the Corinthians uh, right between the eyes because of the way that um, they led their lives, the things that were important to them. If you know anything about Corinth, Corinth was a city. It still is a city. Uh, in Greece, 
and it's at a place in Greece where it's kind of like the middle of an hourglass, if you can think of an hourglass shaped that way. Um, so it's, it's a, as the land goes through the, uh, the city of Corinth, it goes from kind of the northeast to the southwest. It kind of goes angle. Uh, and it's a major thoroughfare from, from the top of one part of Greece down to the bottom of one part. It's, everyone had to go through Corinth. But the other interesting thing about it is that on either side of Corinth, Corinth was about four miles from the ocean to the east and the ocean to the west. And so it was a little bit of an, what, what we call an isthmus. And, and what would happen a lot of times, uh, cargo ships and, and uh, transports would come into one side of Corinth and they would unload their goods into a, you know, a cart or uh, some kind of uh, vehicle that they could transport it over land, take it to the other side and load it on another ship. So in that sense, it was very much of a crossroads city. And crossroads cities are places where people go when they really want to make a mark in life. Uh, they, would, they would go to a city like Corinth and think, this is where I can really shine. I, if I have these great gifts, they'll be appreciated in a crossroads city. And so what you have in the, in the church of Corinth is, is a lot of very talented, very gifted people. And as you read the rest of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians especially, you'll see Paul talking about that in glowing terms, just how, how uh, wonderful their, their gifts were. But what you'll also read as you read through 1 Corinthians is Paul being very unhappy and very, uh, very concerned about the way that they treat one another. And so he says, you can have all these wonderful things, but you're taking the wrong test. It's not going to uh, impress God. How does that work for us, friends? It's easy for us, isn't it, also uh, to mistake talent, to mistake accomplishments for character. It's very easy for us to fall into that trap, just like it was uh, for the Corinthians. And what God would tell us if that's where we're tempted to head is we're taking the wrong test. You're cross-firing. You're shooting at the wrong target here. There's something more important. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says what's more important is love. And so in verses 4 through 7, he gives them what the real test is and, and through the beginning of verse 8. This is the real test. But here's the point that he's trying to make as he gives them this real test. The point is, the second point this morning, you can't pass the right test. You can't pass the right test. You're taking the wrong test, but he goes on to tell them you can't pass the right test. It's, if, it's as if the target is like a mile away and your gun is calibrated for 50 meters. You're just not going to make it. It's not going to work. Uh, you're going to miss wildly. Uh, you can't pass the right test. I think that often when we read through a passage like uh, verses 4 through 7, there's other passages in Scripture like this where it will list various uh, attributes, various character traits, things we ought to pursue. And often when we run into those passages, if you're like me, the temptation is to say, okay, uh, let's list those out and kind of grade myself, how I'm doing on this. And like Cindy, I might say, well, I'm not a patient person, but I'm not rude. Um, I, I, I may not be kind all the time, but, but um, you, you know, there's other qualities here that that do describe me. I might give myself a B here, a C here, an A here, a D here. And then we'd make that list and we would say, now let's work on, I, I should work on these ones where I'm scoring myself very low. 
And so we take that list and we start to, to work through it that way. And that's how we try to apply a passage like this. And Paul would say to us, you don't, you're not getting the point. You're not hearing what I'm saying. Because I'm not telling you to double down in your efforts to do these things. What I'm trying to convince you of is the fact that you can't do them even in, even in the best of cases. Uh, this isn't a situation where you grade yourself from A to F. This is a situation where it's totally pass-fail. It's totally pass-fail. And what Paul wants them to see is in Corinth, they're all failures. And he wants us to see that too. And, and the way that he does this, I mean, he lists all these different things. It's not envious, doesn't boast, it's not arrogant, doesn't insist on its own way. And by the way, when you read all these things that he says love is, and you go to other parts of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, you'll see that he's telling them, hey, you're, you're being rude to one another. When you come to eat your meals together, you're elbowing each other out, out of the way trying to get to the table first. He says, you're, you're not being kind. You're not being patient with one another. You're not being gentle. He's saying, this is what love is. Love is all of these things. And Paul's saying, you need to know that this is just a pass-fail test. And passing isn't 70%. Passing for Paul is 100%. It's 100%. And, and he underscores that at the end of verse 7 when he says, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. Or in the King James it says love never fails. So just to make sure we're getting the point, Paul says not just the majority of the time. It's not a 90% you're okay. Love is 100% all of the time doing these things. And if you're not doing those things, you're not loving. Well, when you begin to see the passage like that, what you begin to understand is that my friend Cindy was right. When she says, don't read, don't tell me love is patient because I'm not patient. And I would have looked at her and I said, man, you've waited 10, 12 years to get married. Or you certainly, you're patient. She goes, no, I'm not patient. She understood it. And as we read this passage, we ought to have that same conviction in our own hearts. We can't do this. We can't do this. Paul talks a little bit later about the fact that now, as I said, we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That idea of being fully known on the surface is the most terrifying thing we can experience, isn't it? I mean, we go through life trying to project the best of ourselves almost all the time. Sometimes we let our guard down and just let it fly, but usually we're trying to project an image. We're trying to project a, a, a way of maturity, a way of grace, a way of progress in our lives. And when someone says, you are, I, I know you fully, like, like what we think, what we do in, in our by ourselves, what we do when no one's looking, you, you're known that way. That's kind of a terrifying thing, that someone knows us fully. And we may be able to fool others, but God does know us fully. And if God knows 
us fully. And he, he's put out this standard of love that always endures, always hopes, always believes, never fails. That leaves us in a position where we have no hope because we are, we are failures. But that's not the end of what Paul says here. Uh, Paul tells us that in Romans that uh, the purpose of the law, he tells us in Galatians that the purpose of the law is really to lead us to Christ. And you say, well, what does law have to do with love? In Romans, Paul says that, <clears throat> that love is fulfillment of the law. That's an interesting way of, of putting it. Uh, he's saying, and I think what he's saying in Romans is that if you really want to know how to love a person in a particular situation, just fulfill the law. Do what God says you're to do in the, in the law, that you're to extend yourself to others, you're to love others, you're to, um, you're to care for them, take care of their needs. In all those ways, what you're doing is demonstrating love. Now, if you're, you know, a guy out there in one of those moments where, uh, you, you know, you're having that romantic moment with your wife or your one you're dating and, and you tell them you love them and they, they say, what does that mean to you? I, I would not suggest that you say, well, that means the fulfillment of the law. You know, you're going to lose the moment if that's what you do at that point. You need to talk about soulmates or, you know, something like that in those kind of moments. But really what, what Paul is saying here is that love, as he lays it out in 1 Corinthians 13, is to have that same effect on us. It's to render us hopeless. The law was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ because we realized the law tells us we can't do it on our own. And this view of love that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 13 ought to remind us that we can't do this. We fail at this. And we need to look uh, for someone who has passed the test. And that's the third point this morning. The hope that we have is that there is someone who has passed the test. Because what Paul is doing here toward the end of 1 Corinthians 13 is actually uh, personifying love. So that we would realize that love is not simply a set of guidelines that we breathe life into. But we all, he also wants us to realize that he's talking about a person here. He's talking about Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ lived the perfect life of love. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 13 <clears throat> and simply substitute the name Jesus for every time it says love, we see that, don't we? Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy, does not boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. All these things characterize Jesus. Jesus personifies love. That's what Paul is trying to um, help us to understand at this point. And, and in, in living that perfect life of love, it enables us to see an example of what that life ought to be, certainly. That's, that's where we start. In your reflections this morning, there were a couple of quotes that I gave you, I, I sent along. Uh, one is about, it actually comes from the Wizard of Oz, and the tin man, you know, the tin man wanted to get a heart, and, um, and, the, and when he finally gets to Oz and he has a conversation with the wizard, at that point the wizard tells tin man, he says, hearts will never be practical until they can be made unbreakable. He's saying when you extend yourself to love someone, you make yourself vulnerable. When you extend yourself that way, you go out on a limb. And the wizard is saying to the tin man, that's not practical. 
unless the heart can be unbreakable, it's not, it's not practical. And the tin man argues with him, and he says, I still want a heart. <laughs> you know, that's, that's part of the story. But the next quote there is a quote from C.S. Lewis, and I won't read that whole quote, but, but he's basically saying in that quote the very same thing. That to extend yourself in love to someone else is to become vulnerable. And if you want to be safe, if you want to be secure, if you don't want to ever go through heartbreak, all you need to do is just isolate yourself and don't try to love people. Because when you try to love people, you're putting yourself on the line. Uh, Jesus certainly did that. He, he didn't come to this world um, to be worshipped, served. Uh, we worship him because of what he did for us. But primarily he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when he went to the cross, what we find out is that Jesus was not just the example for us, but he's the one who really passed the test for us. And that's the final point this morning. Third is that there is one who passed the test, but then finally that he passed the test for us. It's tempting to look at 1 Corinthians 13 and not see the cross in 1 Corinthians 13. And if you, if that's what you, uh, if that's the impression you have, you need to dig a little bit deeper. Because there's so many things that happened at the cross that come through in, in 1 Corinthians 13. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In love on the cross, Christ was not going to remember wrongs. He was patient. Um, he was forgiving. He didn't give up. He said, not my will, Lord, but thine be done. All those things come out of the cross because the cross is the perfect expression of God's love. But perhaps the greatest thing that points us to the cross in, in 1 Corinthians 13 is the concept of eventually seeing God face to face. Because that's what the sacrifice of Jesus enables us to do. We embrace that by faith, and we have then before us the prospect that one day we will see the face of God. We're forgiven, but we will have the deepest longing of our heart met because one day we will see that face. In order for that to happen, Jesus had to lose the face of God. And that's what he went through on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because as Jesus lived his life, he lived it in total, absolute dependence upon the Father. Each and every moment of his life was led in dependence on the Father in a way that, that we can't even begin to understand. And when he came to his point of greatest need, when he needed to lean in the most to the Father on the cross, he leaned and the Father wasn't there. He lost the face of God. When we talk about Jesus experiencing hell for us, that's what he did on the cross. He lost the face of his Father so that we could have that vision of God face to face so that we could receive it. He passed the test for us. We are not only fully known, but in Christ, through what he has done, we're fully loved. My wife and I went to a, a Christian high school together. That's where we met. It was over on the border between Paramount and Compton uh, here in L.A. County. 
uh, we were actually in Paramount, just just a few blocks from Compton. I try to tell my kids that means that I was almost straight out of Compton, and, and it doesn't impress them at all. I get no credit with them on that. They kind of roll their eyes at me. But uh, it was a Christian school, and um, my senior year, I remember a test I took my senior year in high school. It was a Bible test. Uh, the Bible professor uh, gave us a test on on some theo- theology, and there were 25 questions, and they were all true-false. So how many of you have taken true-false tests? You know how you take true-false tests, you, you kind of go through if you're like me, and, and the ones that are real obvious, you mark right away. You know, you just get those out of the way. And then, you know, out of 25, you may get 15 or 20 that are pretty obvious to you, and you, you mark them, and then you leave the ones you're just not quite sure of, and then you go back to those. Well, that's what I did on this test. And I, I think I had, you know, 16 or 17 of the of the questions, I, I just knew, you know, that was the answer, that was the answer. I went all the way down. And I got back and I got ready to go through the ones that I needed to think a little harder about. But I looked at my answers and realized that every answer I had so far was true. Every answer, my, my answer was true. And I thought, there's got to be some falses in here somewhere. You know, you, you don't give a test where they're all true. And so I began to wrestle with these things until... I remembered something. Here's what I remembered. I had a brother who was a year and a half older than me, but he was just a year older in school. Went to the same school, took the same class, had the same teacher. And I remember about a year ago, he came home one day from school, and around dinner he was laughing and telling us about this test he had just took where the teacher gave him a 25-question true-false test, and all of the answers were true. And I'm sitting there agonizing over these last seven or eight answers. This is true-false, and I realize this is the class. That's the teacher. This is the test. And I just wrote down true, 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 true. And I walked up, slapped the test down, left, and everyone's looking around like, how did you get through that so fast, you know? And they all came out and they go, man, that was weird because it seemed like, you know, there were hardly any falses on that. I go, there weren't any falses. You know, I'm speaking with all this authority now. And, and they go, well, how do you know? And I go, well, you know, I broke down and I told them. And they were all upset with me, you know, because I had this advantage. It wasn't something that... Uh, you know, I sought out. It's just something I happened to remember. I, mean, I justified it that way. But I aced the test, 100% on this test. Now, if I hadn't had the advantage that I did, my hunch is that I would have found three or four of those that I, I knew were false, you know, just because that's how you take a test like that. But because I had that advantage, because really someone else had taken the test, I could get it right. Paul is telling us in this passage that there's this test we have to take in order to receive that glorious vision of God. It's not the test of great things we do, great gifts that we have, great sacrifices that we make. It's the simple test of loving one another. And it's a test we can't pass. But it's a test that Jesus has passed. And if we trust the one who's passed the test, Paul says we can have that vision. Friends, this morning, if you look at this passage, especially verses 4 through 7, for inspiration, I'm afraid that you're going to end up, if you really understand it, you're going to end up being depressed because you're going to realize how how far short you fall. If you look at it as a standard, you're going to be destroyed. But if you look at it as that which Christ has lived for us, 
And if you look at it, it's that which we need to embrace in Christ, our Savior. That when he loved perfectly, he loved not only us, but he loved for us. So that our record that we receive from him would be as spotless as his. And when God looks at us, he says, you passed the test. Enter into my glory. See my face. Have every longing of your heart fulfilled. Because Jesus is love. And he's loved you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that your gospel is not one which lowers the bar. It's not the case that as you as you see us stumble through, that you just say, do your best and, and we'll take it from there. But you kept the bar at perfection. And then you, you gave your one and only son to meet that standard. Not for himself, but for us. So that we can be free not only to love you back, but to love others be empowered uh, to love others the way that Jesus loved. Not because we're creating our record. Jesus has done that for us. But because out of gratitude to you, we desire more than anything else to follow in those steps. May we know first that we're loved. And from that, may we turn to love you back and to love others as well. In Jesus' name, amen.